historians often cite 1920 as the official end of the American Wild West. But for many, the Wild West died along with Butch and Sundance in a hail of bullets in Bolivia, 1908. Two men did die in a gunfight there, but the bodies were never positively identified as Butch and Sundance. We don't often picture the Wild West as existing at the same time as Victorian England, but history is as much a place as a time. We saw that with our first two stories that happened close in time, yet worlds apart. And the truth is that Butch's first bank robbery was only a year after Jack the Ripper plied his bloody trade. Come back with me to the year 1889 as we ride with a gang known as the Wild Bunch. Welcome back to episode three of Scalawags, the podcast where I, your host Marguerite, tell you a story about mendacious pettifoggers, pusillanimous scofflaws, and knavish skullduggery. In other words, historical crime. I don't know about you, but last week was pretty intense. So this week we had something completely different different. We're going to talk about Butch Cassidy, Sundance, and really all the members of the Wild Bunch. So settle in for some cowboys and some bank robberies and all of that good stuff. No content warnings because if you've ever watched a Western, you know what you're in for little bit about my sources. I used um, articles from biography.com, HistoryNet, Wild West Magazine, an article from The Daily Beast, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids Last Tango. Actually, a really good article. Please ignore the cat. The Secret Story of Butch and Sundance Kids Last Tango, from bunkhistory.org, and I used an excellent book, Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw. I first learned of that book on a podcast called Most Notorious, which, if you love history and crime, is an absolute must on your listen list because the host interviews authors of historical crime books. And it's just really well done, so interesting. And it seems like every week I listen and my to-read pile just keeps growing based upon it. But that's where I first learned about the book. Uh, The author is Charles Learson. It's a really interesting interview and it's what got me interested in reading more about uh, Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch. Now let's talk a little bit about the infamous Butch. He was famously glib, flashy, but he was born a poor Mormon farm boy in Utah 
near Circleville, April 13, 1866, as Robert Leroy Parker. He was the eldest of 13 children. Now, as a teen, he moved out of his home, not unusual, and was working at doing ranching and as a butcher, which is where he got his nickname. His mentor was a cattle thief named Mike Cassidy, and he actually ended up taking Mike's last name because that way he wouldn't disrespect his family with his way of life. Now, Mike didn't lure Butch into a life of crime. He was already well down that path on his own. Thank you. Don't lead me into temptation. I can find it for myself. But Mike was a different type of thief. Um, he was cheerful, business-like, and he was not like some of the brutal rough types that Butch was acquainted with. And that is really who he would emulate. He learned the ropes from Mike and then kind of just knocked about as a wrestler and a horse thief. He had a reputation for being charming. He's kind of good looking, but not too good looking. I think looking at the pictures, he reminds me of Kurt Russell. Um, you can see his pictures on my Pinterest. Yes, I'm an old lady. I still use Pinterest. It is at Marguerite Says. And if you look there, you'll see pictures of Butch. His first known crime is 1880. He went into town to get some jeans or some overalls. I read both in different accounts. But when he gets there, the store is closed. No problem. He just smashes out a window, breaks into the clothing shop steals a pair of jeans and some pie, leaving an IOU note promising to pay on his next visit. Well, the store owner pressed charges, probably not so happy with the broken window and damage or the pie, but Cassidy uses his legendary wit and charm and the jury walks him. He's not convicted and he learned that he could talk his way out of just about everything. Now, he continues working on ranches until 1884, which continued to work on ranches until 1884 when he moved to Colorado. Supposedly, he is going there to work as a cowboy, but he is really there to deliver stolen horses to buyers. He doesn't go alone. He goes with two friends, Wiley and Elder, and they really had to go because they're all in hot water. Cassidy's name has come up in relation to the stolen horses. Elder is wanted for chewing off a man's ear in a fight. At this time, they are what Leeson calls semi-outlaws. One foot in sunlight and one in shadow. So Cassidy does cowboy things all over Wyoming, Montana, before he returns to Telluride, Colorado, where he commits his first known bank robbery. June 24th, 1889, Butch Cassidy and three other men robbed the San Miguel Valley Bank in Telluride, and he scores around 21,000, which is over half a million in money today. And they flee to a place called Robber's Roost, and he uses the money to buy a ranch across from Hole in the Wall, Wyoming. Now, what is with these names? These are all hideouts on what comes to be called the Outlaw Trail. The Outlaw Trail is not really one specific trail, but it's a series of hideouts that ran from Montana through Wyoming, Colorado, 
Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, and all the way down into Mexico. And Butch Cassidy is the one who really pioneered this idea. Uh, he got it from the way the Pony Express operated. Like the Pony Express, Butch's gang would leave fresh horses and supplies all along their escape route in hideaways and outlaw-friendly ranches about 20 miles apart. This series of hideouts and supplies would stretch for about a thousand miles, and they took full advantage along the way of the difficult terrain. There's narrow canyons and wide open spaces that would make them really hard to catch, especially when Butch had just jumped on fresh horses and the pursuing posses were still on their tired horses. Robert's Roost was a hideout in southern Utah. The terrain was really rough and it could be easily defended. While Butch was hiding out there, that's where he first formed the Wild Bunch Gang. The gang built cabins and stored horses, cattle, chicken, and guns up there. It was like their own little farm. You can see pictures of it again on my Pinterest. Um, this place wasn't found by lawmen until a Salt Lake City posse found it and killed some of the gang there in a shootout. I love that the canyon came to be known as Robber's Roost Canyon. And Roost was up on the high ground in a canyon and you couldn't get to it without being seen. So it's the perfect place to hide. According to Wikipedia, it's a remote tributary of the Dirty Devil River, which is itself a tributary of the Colorado. And as for the Outlaw Trail, there are whole, uh, a whole travel industry uh, dedicated to it. People walk it. They ride it. You can ride it on horseback and still travel the Outlaw Trail. And I have some of those travel sites um, pinned to my Pinterest if you want to follow any of them and think about the possibility of traveling the Outlaw Trail yourself. I mentioned a ranch in Hole in the Wall. Hole in the Wall is a remote pass in the Bighorn Mountains of Wyoming. And Butch and his Wild Bunch gang would meet up there at a log cabin, which is now preserved, at the Old Trail Town Museum in Cody, Wyoming. Butch wasn't the only one who used it. There were other outlaws who sometimes rode with Butch, like the Logan brothers, Kid Curry, who we're going to talk about because he becomes integral to the uh, Wild Bunch. Blackjack Ketchum and his gang. It's worth noting here that if the West seems lawless, like all these people are just ready and willing to jump into the outlaw life, the American West was a broken dream. The landowners there had been lured by the Homestead Act of 1862 with the promise of free land that they only had to work for a time in order to earn. After the Civil War, men and women looking for a fresh start are going west, chasing this mythical agrarian utopia that instead they found hardship, loneliness, drought, starvation, and financial ruin at the hands of predatory banks. Not to mention, but this empty land was not actually empty or uninhabited. There were people living there. 
but that's a separate crime from our story. So Butch's parents had been hard scrabble farmers themselves. He likely grew up without any sentimentality about the the West. Sundance was somebody who had kind of grown up in a city and he came West looking for a more freewheeling lifestyle. I've been talking about the men, but if you're looking at my Wild Bunch board, you'll see that there are plenty of pictures of women. And yes, women were just as involved in the outlaw life. You'll notice uh, some particularly beautiful women there. And there was an infamous pair, the Bassett sisters. The most famous of the Bassett sisters is Anne Bassett. She and her sister Josie were raised by their dad, Herb, who did business with outlaws. Both women loved to be outside. They preferred ranching and the cowboy life to sitting in a parlor. They would rather be in jeans than skirts. Anne was known as Queen Anne Bassett. She met Butch in 1894, and they became romantically involved. At the time, her father was supplying the gang with their fresh horses and beef. Now, that same year, Butch is arrested in Wyoming for stealing horses and possibly for running a protection racket. He was sentenced to two years, and he may have been an outlaw, but Butch was known to be a straight shooter. His word was a promise. Allegedly, on one night before he was to begin his sentence, he asked to be released, promising he would return to jail the following day. And the sheriff met his word and let him go, and the next morning Butch came back. Now, he served 18 months of the two years and then took up right where he left off, both with his gang and with Anne. Being cozy with outlaws wasn't a bad thing for the Bassets. In 1896, um, wealthy cattle barons were trying to buy the Bassett Ranch, but they weren't selling. Now, these wealthy barons, uh, um, the wealthy cattle barons want to buy the Bassett Ranch, but they're not selling. So the ranchers began to just wrestle the the cattle. These were people who would swoop in, oftentimes with the assistance of the bank, and try to foreclose or buy farms and ranches at a pittance as people were straggling out there trying to make a living in this desolate, difficult location. Anne and Josie would then go out and steal their cattle back. This sparked a real feud. Things got dangerous. The cattle barons hired a man named Tom Horn to handle matters. Horn was supposed to kill rustlers for wealthy barons, never mind that they were also rustlers who were stealing cattle. Horn was a famous gunslinger and known for killing wrestlers. He is quite a character. He worked as a scout, a cowboy, a soldier, and an agent for the Pinkerton Detective Agency. He is known to have killed at least 17 men as a hired gunman up until 1902, when he was convicted and hanged for the murder of a 14-year-old boy who was son of a sheep rancher. The sheep rancher and the cattle rancher were engaged in a feud, and the cattleman hired Horn to stop alleged thefts by the sheep rancher. But the killing of the boy was straight-up murder. In fact, there's probably should be an entire episode on Tom Horn. This was not killing a thief caught in action, 
Um, and so they finally killed the killer. Now, Horn didn't do anything to the Bassets, although he did kill two of their associates. As for Josie, she was romantically involved with Elsie Lay. Elsie was Butch's best friend and right hand. Butch and Sundance's names are always linked because Sundance is a great nickname and because that is who he went, Butch went down south with and not Sundance, but presumably died with. Josie and Butch had a brief fling, but she was really involved with Elsie. And while Butch and Josie were having their fling, Anne, who had been Butch's main squeeze, was at that time getting cozy with Ben Kilpatrick, who is another gang member we're going to talk about. And this guy is known as the Tall Texan. But mostly it was Butch and Anne and Josie and Elsie until Elsie took up with a Mormon woman named Maude Davis, and Josie hooks up with another member of the Wild Bunch, Will News Carver. It sounds a little like a soap opera, and all the reports are that they're not bothered by the way they just... So we have romantic ties between the Bassets and the Wild Bunch, and business ties with the horses and the beef. And the Bassets getting, are getting pressured by the cattle barons to sell. It's reasonable to believe that the reason Tom Horn didn't go straight for the Bassets is because they were tight with Butch and his gang. And they so they were not to be messed with. Now, there is a story that Kid Curry, who is known as the craziest and most dangerous member of the gang, went and paid a little visit to some of the cattle baron employees and after this, the pressure to sell mysteriously eased up. Anne actually rode with Butch and the boys and joined up with the gang at Robber's Roost. Uh, Josie seems to have sort of gone straight after her dalliances. And after as she broke up with Elsie Lay, she wasn't intimately involved with the gang anymore. Now, Elsie would marry that Maud Davis and... Maud also rode with the gang. The only other woman known to have ridden with the gang and to have joined them at Robert's Roost was uh, Ethel Place, who you will often see listed as Etta Place, uh, Sundance's girlfriend. That was not her name. It was Ethel. And Laura Bullion. Laura was also a full gang member in her own right. She was a Texas gal, and she ran with the gang for years. Now, Laura's father had been an outlaw, so it's not surprising that is how she lived her life. She wanted to ride with Blackjack Ketchum and his gang, but he wouldn't have a woman in his gang. So she said whatever. She joined up with the Wild Bunch and she rode with until Laura and Bill Kilpatrick, the tall Texan, who was her main squeeze, were arrested. And both of them were sent to prison. Let's talk about some of the other members of the Wild Bunch. If you're going to be in a gang, you need a cool name. Notable members include Butch's best friend that we've talked about, William Ellsworth Lay, Elsie, Harvey Logan, who went by Kid Curry, Ben Kilpatrick, the tall Texan, a man named Harry Tracy, where's his cool name? Uh, Will Carver, who was known as News Carver because he really liked to see his name in the news. 
Laura Bullion. Laura also deserved a cool name. And George Flatnose Curry, who became, collectively, this group became the Wild Bunch. Um, the gang assembles sometime after Cassidy's release from prison in 1896. Let's talk about Elsie Lay. Um, he was born November 25th, 1869, so just post-Civil War. He's going to have a long life up until November 10th, 1934. And as I said, Lay was Cassidy's best friend. They first hooked up in Utah. But when Elsie married Maud, they had a daughter named Marvel. And Maud wanted Elsie to quit the thug life. But he didn't choose it. It chose him. He said no. So Maud went and settled down with Marvel. And Elsie kept writing with Butch. Butch and the Wild Bunch they embarked on what is considered the longest stretch of successful train and bank robberies in American history. The Wild Bunch robberies start in August 1896 with a bank robbery in Mount Montpelier, Idaho, in which the gang made off with more than $7,000. The group then hits banks and trains in South Dakota, New Mexico, Nevada, Wyoming. Between the robberies, the men would hide out at Robber's Roost or at the Hole in the Wall Pass. Their most famous Wild Bunch robbery was of the Union Pacific train near Wilcox, Wyoming. It's 1 a.m. on June the 2nd, 1899. There's a trestle across the Union Pacific near Wilcox. The Wild Bunch sets up a barricade. The Overland Flyer train has to has to halt at the barricade and Butch and his gang wearing masks that they had made from white napkins, possibly stolen from a Harvey House restaurant, they board the train. One of the men um, attempts to ford the, force the engineer to pull the train forward. He won't, so they pull the train forward themselves, and then they dynamite the trestle behind them so that the second section of the train that's coming can't catch up with them. And they separate the passenger cars, pull the train forward a couple miles, and they stop, and there the express car is surrounded by the rest of the gang. There's an attendant by the name of E.C. Woodcock, and he is ordered by the gang to open the door. When he refuses, they just blow up the car. Woodcock, from the concussion he received in the explosion, is unable to remember the combination to the safe, so they blow up the safe. And then the gang collects about $30,000 from the train's safe, along with diamonds and negotiable banknotes. This is a huge score. They are pursued by a posse, and they are cornered. Then Kid Curry, who was always the killer of the bunch, shot and killed Converse County Sheriff Josiah Hansen. E.H. Harriman is the owner of Union Pacific, and he hires the Pinkerton Detective Agency to put a price on the Wild Bunch gang members' heads. He starts at $1,000 for each, but after the gang responds by just pulling off robberies at a crazy pace over the next two years, hitting trains and banks, boom, 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 one after the other, he raises the price to 5000 and then $10,000 for any member of the gang 
wanted dead or alive. So to lay low after this two-year spree, the when Laura and Ben Kilpatrick went to prison, Ben served about 10 years of his 15-year sentence. He was released from prison on June 1911. Immediately, Ben is back at it. March 12th, 1912, he is killed by a hostage while robbing a train near Sanderson, Texas. Ben's robbing a train, and he has held up the express manager, a man named David Truesdale, in the Wells Fargo baggage and mail car. And Kilpatrick is looting the safe, looking for any other valuables he can find. Truesdale while manages to hide an ice mallet under the back of his jacket. That's a mallet for breaking up um, ice. And Truesdale then tells Kilpatrick, hey, there's a valuable package lying on the ground. And like a dummy, Kilpatrick bends over to look. Truesdale pulls the mallet from underneath his coat and he smashes Kilpatrick at the back of his head and neck until he is dead. Actually, Kilpatrick probably died instantly of a broken neck and a crushed skull, but the beating with the mallet was so gnarly that Kilpatrick's brains allegedly stained the walls of the car. Howdy, and welcome to Not an Ad Break, where instead of discounts for luxury linens or mattresses or vitamins, you get a word of the week. This week, our word is flapdoodle. Flapdoodle means nothing. Seriously, it's a nonsense word that means nonsense. You got flapdoodle, you got a whole lot of nothing. The earliest known usage is anywhere from 1833 to 1873, depending on who you read. None of the sources I looked at could agree on pretty much anything except that flapdoodle is probably a made-up word comprised of silly sounds to indicate ridiculous nonsense. According to Merriam-Webster, the letters F, L, and D are silly. Consider the words fiddle-faddle, Falderall or fiddlesticks. So, there you go. This week, you'll get flapdoodle and you'll like it. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. On July 8th, 1899, Elsie Lay led Kid Curry, Sam Ketchup, and News Carver in the robbery of a train near Folsom, New Mexico. The robbery was successful, but a posse cornered them in an area known as Turkey Creek. Uh, in the gun battle that, that follows, a deputy is killed, another deputy is wounded, and Sam Ketchum is also badly wounded. The gang escapes, but Ketchum's severe injuries really slow them down, and they are cornered again. There is a second gun battle. And this time, the sheriff and another deputy are killed. Elsie was wounded, but he and Kid Curry and News Carver all escaped. Uh, Sam Ketchum was caught, but he ends up dying from his wounds. On August 11th, 1899, Elsie Lay is caught in New Mexico. He is tried and given a life sentence for the robberies and the deaths. While he's locked up, Maude divorces him. 
he spends seven years in prison. Elsie becomes a trustee to the warden there, and in this role, he once accompanied the warden to Santa Fe. Upon their return, they find that the inmates had taken the warden's wife and daughter hostage inside the prison. Elsie is able to convince the prisoners to release the women, and for this act, he is pardoned by the governor in 1906. Now, by the time he gets out, Laura Bullion and Ben Kilpatrick are locked up. They're serving their, their long stint. Um, Kid Curry has died in a shootout, and so has George Flatnose Curry. Elsie meets a woman, marries, raises a family, and lives until 1934 when he is buried in Glendale, California. And he is supposed to have worked in the film, film industry as an advisor on Westerns. There's no evidence that after his release, he ever had any contact with the Wild Bunch again. So when Elsie was captured, Butch, Kid Curry, and Bill Carver, or Bill News Carver, um, all leave New Mexico. Losing his best friend really takes the stuffing out of Butch. And for a time, he makes some attempts at actually getting amnesty from the governor of Utah. Um, they're in talks. It looks like he's going to get amnesty. But then there are several killings that we're going to talk about committed by Kid Curry and other robberies being committed by gang members of the Wild Bunch gang, and they just make this impossible for him. Now it's a good time to talk about Harvey Alexander Logan, a.k.a. Kid Curry. He's born in 1867, and while he may not be the best-known outlaw from the Wild Bunch, Kid Curry has been called the wildest of the Wild Bunch for allegedly killing at least nine law enforcement officers, and two other men that we know of. Um, he was involved in numerous shootouts, bank robberies, and train robberies. He was an outlaw and a stone-cold killer. And it's easy for them to point to Butch and say, you know, how Butch is never known to have directly shot anyone because he doesn't have to when he has an enforcer like Kit Curry and other people to do the dirty work for him. He can be the charming face of the of the wild bunch. So Curry starts out breaking horses on a ranch in Texas where he meets up and befriends um, flat-nosed George Curry. He was a Logan at this time, so he adopts Curry's last name and um, his brothers would also take the name Curry. So you'll hear about the Logan brothers, but you'll also hear them called the Curry brothers. Same guys. They're all known as hardworking when they're sober and hard partying when they got paid. Kid had a tendency to go out and hit a lick, then come back and just throw massive parties with all the booze and women anyone could want. The local sex workers all loved him because he was generous and after he would commit a robbery, he would be flat broke again in no time because um, he would just blow it all. So he became famous when sex workers would get pregnant. He didn't mind if they named him on the birth certificate so they could give a name to their child. 
And these children were also often referred to as Curry Kids. It's believed that Kid Curry was credited with as many as 85 children, but the number of kids he actually fathered was probably fewer than five. But there are still descendants of the Curry Kids remaining scattered throughout Eastland, Texas and the surrounding areas um, to this day. So, if you're in north or central counties in Texas and your last name is Curry, you could be a descendant. Kid Curry traveled around working as a cowboy and got into some pretty nasty saloon brawls. He killed a man over a woman, although all reports show it was pretty much self-defense. This pair had bad blood, and when they ran into each other at one point, Curry punched the man. But um, Curry was leaving. The man then pulled a pistol and is threatening to kill Curry. Curry pulls his gun in return and then shot him because Curry was the faster draw. This was in Montana. He fled before the trial. During the Wild Bunch hiatus, Curry takes up with Blackjack Ketchum and his gang. Pickerton detectives were already hot on his trail. And Curry learns that a friend of his, a rancher, was spying on him for this, the reward money. So Curry takes his brothers, Johnny and Lonnie. Yes, Johnny and Lonnie. And they go over to confront the rancher. There's a shootout. Johnny is killed, but Lonnie and Kid escape. So soon into, after this, they get into an argument with Blackjack over their take in a train robbery. They leave the gang and they join the circus because why not? But Kid goes back to robbing because he's just really good at it. That's his thing. He starts um, writing with the Wild Bunch, takes place in the famous robbery of the Overland Flyer. February 28th, 1900, lawmen are attempting to arrest Lonnie Curry at his um, home. Lonnie is killed in the shootout that follows. And at the same time, George Flatnose Curry is caught wrestling and he is killed. So Kid Curry is now the last surviving Logan slash Curry brother. Meanwhile, um, Curry and News Carver are located in Arizona where they are passing um, banknotes that had been stolen in the Overland Flyer robbery. A posse comes after them and Curry and Carver kill a deputy by the name of Andrew Gibbons and another one by the name Frank Lasor. So two more, add two more um, lawmen to Curry's resume. So May 26, Kid Curry rides into Utah and he kills two more men who are a sheriff and a deputy and just a brazen shootout in um, Moab. Both killings were in retaliation for the lawmen having killed uh, Flatnose Curry and Lonnie. So Curry and Carver joined back up with the Wild Bunch in August 1900, and the bank gang scores what's one of their biggest heists. They rob a Union Pacific train near Tipton, Wyoming, and get more than $55,000. This gang heads to Fort Worth, and this is where the famous Fort Worth Five photo was taken. If you look for pictures of Butch Cassidy 
and of the Wild Bunch. This is probably the um, photo that will pop up. It was taken on Main Street in Fort Worth. And if you look at the photo on the far left is Sundance. In the middle is um, Ben Kilpatrick. Far right is Butch Cassidy. On the back row is going to be News Carver in the derby hat. And then the guy with the big woolly mustache, that's Kid Curry. Butch Sundance and News Carver pull off a robbery in Winnemunca, Nevada, and Kid Curry rejoins them. They rob a Great Northern train near Wagnum, Montana, and they score another $60,000. They have scored over a million dollars in today's money in these two heists. They're being pursued again. They are chased all the way to Texas, and... Carver is killed in a shootout. Um, that's where News Carver dies. So they all split. This is the time when Laura Bullion and Ben Kilpatrick are captured in St. Louis. Kid Curry gets involved in yet another shootout and kills two more policemen in Knoxville. So he is on the run again and heavily pursued by Pinkerton agents. You see why Kurt Kid Curry is the wildest of the wilds bunch. So Kid goes back to Montana and remember that rancher who killed his brother Johnny when they went looking for them? Kid Curry shoots him. Kid goes back to Knoxville. Why? I don't know. But he is spotted in a pool hall there in November 30th, 1902, and a lengthy fight follows. But he's arrested, and he gets a sentence of 20 years hard labor. The reason he is not given a death sentence and hung like so many others is because no witnesses will agree to testify against him. Everyone's afraid of him. So he only gets 20 years, but less than a year later, he escapes. He is on the run. In 1904, um, Kid and a couple other men rob a train, because why lie low? Um, they're outside Parachute, Utah. They escape, but there is a posse in hot pursuit, and Kid Curry is seriously wounded in the shootout and ends up surrounded. Rather than be taken again, he shoots himself in the head and ends things. We have talked about Bill News Carver, and like I said, he got his nickname because he liked to read about the gang's exploits in the paper and really liked seeing his name there. Um, he enjoyed the notoriety. He was another Texan, and he was shot and killed in Jack Owens Bakery, April 2nd, 1901, in Sonora, Texas. News liked to be flashy. He enjoyed dressing up, wearing fancy clothes. The sheriffs and deputies came into the bankery and they were actually trying to arrest Carver on a warrant for murder of a man named Thornton. He was with Ben Kilpatrick, who allegedly made some sort of fumbling motion. Lawman just opened fire. Carver's gun, quote, never cleared his holster before he was shot six times. He was allegedly got his gun kind of caught up in his fancy suspenders and before he died he muttered the phrase die game boys um, Kilpatrick lives 
is later cleared of the Thornton murder and is able to clear Carver of the murder. It was most likely Kid Curry who was responsible for the Thornton murder and Ben and um, Carver were someplace else at the time the murder occurred. So 1896 is when Butch recruits Harry Alonzo Longbaugh, also known as Sundance Kid, into the gang. This was soon after Butch's release from that um, 18-month stint he did in prison. Sundance was the youngest of five kids. He was born in Pennsylvania and got his name from the papers. While he was in Sundance, Wyoming, he committed his first known crime. In 1887, he stole a gun, a horse, and a saddle from a ranch and was captured by authorities, sentenced to 18 months in jail. And newspapers referred to him as the Sundance Kid and the name stuck. Sundance was reportedly fast with a gun and was often referred to as a gunfighter, but he is not known to have killed anyone prior to the shootout in Bolivia in which he and Butch are going to allegedly be killed. However, he definitely took part in numerous shootouts, so who knows. Let's talk about that trip. Um, Life in the U.S. was getting pretty hot for the remnants of the gang. So Butch, Sundance, and Ethel Place catch a ship from New York to Argentina in 1901. Butch posed as um, James Ryan and was allegedly traveling as Ethel Place's fish's brother. They pair claim to have inherited a large amount of money from an uncle. They purchase a 15,000 acre ranch on the east banks of the Rio Blanco near Cholila. On Valentine's Day 1905, two English-speaking bandits pulled up a bank around 700 miles south of Cholila, and then the pair vanished north across the Patagonian grasslands. May 1st of that same year, Butch and Sundance sell the Cholila Ranch. Pinkerton Agency supposedly knew where they were and were coming for them, but friendly parties tipped them off, so they get out. The trio travels north into Chile to hide out, but they return to Argentina by the end of the year. Butch, Sundance, and Ethel, and another unknown man rob a branch of the National Bank of Argentina and then flee across the Andes back to Chile. June 30th, 1906, Ethel Place decides she's done. She'd really been happy living on the Cholila Ranch, and she wanted to settle down. So Sundance took her back to San Francisco, left her there. Back in South America, Butch gets a job using the alias James Santiago Maxwell, and he's working at the Concordia Tin Mine in Santa Vera Cruz of Central Bolivian Andes. Sundance rejoins him there and also gets a gig where they are, are you ready? Guarding the company payroll. This is 1907, and allegedly during that time, they really did intend to go legit and settle down as ranchers and took their job guarding the payroll seriously. Now, the assistant manager there, a man named Percy Siebert, knew that his employees had been outlaws, 
but says that he never had the slightest trouble with either one of them. He found Sundance somewhat taciturn. Sundance wasn't known for being a chatty guy. He could be kind of moody and quiet, which was, you know, life of the party. And so um, Siebert got really attached to them. After Siebert became the manager they were of Concordia Mine. They were his regular guests and, quote, to avoid unpleasant surprises, Butch always took the seat with a view to the valley and the trail to Siebert's house. So kept his back to the wall and in 1908, Sundance gets drunk and stupid and publicly brags about who they are. So they have to quit their job and leave Concordia Mines. The Concordia Mine payroll is robbed twice. Although there's no direct evidence that Butch and Sundance had anything to do with either robbery. However, one news report indicates that the robbers of the first incident spoke English with American accents. Butch and Sundance next surfaced in Tupiza, which is a mining center in center in southern Bolivia. There they come upon the camp of a British engineer named A.G. Francis, who is supervising the transportation of a gold dredge on the San Juan del Oro River. They tell him their names are George Lowe and Frank Smith, ask if they can stay for a while and rest their mules. And Francis is really won over by them, especially by Butch's charm, and they all stay together for several weeks. Now, in late October, Francis moves his headquarters to um, Tamahuaco, Huico? I don't know. Um, three miles south of Verdugo on the west banks of San Juan del Oro. Shortly thereafter, Butch and Sundance moved back to Tupiza. Then March 3rd, 1908, a man named Carlos Perro picks up payroll for the Aramayo mines and sets off. 9.30 a.m., Perro's party follows a curved trail only to find it blocked by two men with bandanas pulled up and hats pulled down so that only their eyes could be seen. Both men were heavily armed. One man, who is believed by sources to be Sundance, keeps his distance. He says nothing. The other man, um, who is shorter and stouter, who's believed to be Butch, Butch was about five foot nine and really burly, so, believed to be Butch, tells Pero hand over the payroll. And Pero had a young son with him, told the men they can take whatever they want. Now, Butch is speaking English, tells them, we don't want any of your personal items, only the 80,000 pesos you are supposed to be carrying for the Adamayo company. Then Pero says, no, we only have 15,000 pesos. That's worth about $90,000 today. But because the... The larger payroll isn't going to come until the following week. So it's clear that this pair has been planning the heist. They had information about the payroll and the movements, um, but it wasn't completely accurate. So they take the, the pesos the, that they have, they flee to the south, and hole up in the new camp there of their old friend, Francis. It's past midnight when they arrive. Butch is supposedly unwell, takes to bed, but Sundance stays up late talking with Francis about the holdup. Now, Francis would later tell reporters that Sundance says, 
We had never hurt or killed a man except in self-defense, and we never stole from the poor, only from rich corporations well able to support their, quote, requisitions. But Francis didn't approve of the outlaw life, although he admitted both men were always pleasant to him and that he didn't intend to rat them out. But the next morning, a friend comes rushing into the camp, warns everyone that soldiers are coming. Butch and Sundance saddle up and flee, and they insist that Francis come with them. He does not want to, but is, and I quote, persuaded. So he helps them get away and kind of navigate the terrain because Francis really knows his way around the area. Fearing that he might be caught in um, any crossfire if the soldiers catch up with him, Francis takes them along the San Juan del Oro south to a village called Estacarta. He arranges for them to spend the night in a room there. Early the next morning, they all get up, Butch and Sundance thank him and ask him to, if anyone comes up with, catches up with him, tell any soldiers that he saw the bandits making for the Argentine border, which is the complete different direction. And in fact, he does meet up with some soldiers and claims that he saw them making for the Argentine border. Now, Butch and Sundance stop in a very tiny village. They talk to a man they meet about getting a room for the night. He tells them there isn't an inn in the town. It's too small, but tells them they can rent a room for the night in a person's home, gives them the directions. They arrive. The man says, sure, you can stay here, helps them get bedded down for the night, and then immediately runs off to tell the authorities because one of the mules they had that had been, they had stolen one of the mules in the payroll heist, and the man recognizes the mule probably from a brand uh, as belonging to that mining company. They were betrayed by a mule. Now, the soldiers, the police chief, the local mayor, and some of his officials all surround the house on that night. It is November the 6th. They plan to go in and arrest the pair of men that are the Aramayo robbers. But as they approach the house, the two men inside open fire. Um, one of the soldiers is killed. Another one is seriously wounded. And the gunfight is now it's on. So bullets are flying. Things get quiet for a little bit. And then the mayor says he hears a man screaming in the house and then two gunshots. But everyone's freaked out. They wait until daylight. And the next morning they go in and there are two bodies just riddled with bullets. Numerous bullet wounds, heads and arms. There is a man, the taller and leaner of the two, who's presumed to have been Sundance. He is sitting up and sort of um, leaning against a large ceramic jar. He has a bullet wound to his forehead. The shorter, stouter man, who is presumed to be Butch, is stretched out on the floor with a bullet hole in the temple. The local police report speculated that judging from the position of the bodies, the man presumed to be Sundance had been grievously injured and was the one that was heard screaming and that Butch had probably put Sundance out of his misery and then killed himself. So they believe it's a murder-suicide. The Tupiza police identify that these bandits, yes, these are the men who robbed the Aramayo payroll transport, but Bolivian authorities don't know the real names, nor could they actually positively identify them. How they did identify them? Well, they buried them, 
But then two weeks after they had been buried, the bodies were dug up, shown to Pedro, who supposedly identifies them. Uh, th that's how they're identified. Um, then there's an inquest and the people were interviewed, but no one knew the men's real names. Authorities did say that the Aramayo mine payroll was found in one of the men's saddlebags. However, one of the soldiers present took the payroll and the mule with him. So thus the legend comes to a very unsatisfying end. You can see why people are not convinced that it was Bush and Sundance that were killed. The bodies of the two men believed to be Bush and Sundance were buried in a small cemetery in San Vicente. In 1991, a man named Clyde Snow, who was an American forensic anthropologist, went back and tried to find the graves. He did locate the graves that were allegedly Butch and Sundance's. They took some DNA from those graves and attempted to compare it to living relatives or descendants of Butch and Sundance, but there were not any DNA matches. So, numerous claims that one or both men survived and that they came back to the USA. One of these claims was that Sundance lived under the name William Henry Long in Utah, and that man died in 1936. His remains were exhumed and subjected to DNA testing in 2008. They were supposedly compared to a distant relative of Sundance's, and there was not a DNA match made. Now, Josie Bassett, remember the Bassett sisters? She claimed that she saw Butch in the 1920s and told a story that he died in Nevada. There were residents of Butch's Utah hometown, also claimed that Butch lived out his life in Nevada. His own sister, Lulu, and she, I see her listed as both Lulu and Lula. She wrote her own book um, and sounds like quite a character. And there's a lot of things that she says in her books that are, or her book that were um, objectively not factual. So who knows, but she claimed to have seen Butch in the 1920s. Um, now, Pinkerton heard about the shootout in Bolivia, but they dismissed the whole story as, as false. The agency officially never called off the search for Butch and Sundance. In 1921, um, William Pinkerton claimed that he had information the pair was alive and living in Argentina. In 2019, an investigative journalist named Christoph Putzel met with a local researcher um, in at the Parker Ranch in Circleville, Utah, to talk about the alleged burial of Butch Cassidy on family property there. The researcher repeated claims that Butch had been buried at a log cabin located in a remote area of the family ranch. The underside of the cabin was dug and two bones were discovered. They were identified as a human spinal bone and a toe bone. 
So a body had been buried there at some point. Putzel had the bones tested, but there was not enough DNA found in them for comparison. He hypothesized that the family had moved the bones after the story circulated about the burial, and they had just missed two of the very small bones there. But the bones did come back as human, just not enough DNA. You probably know about the infamous Butch and Sundance movie. Uh, it was a highly fictionalized account of their uh, lives. In fact, the studio insisted on certain things being changed, such as them dying in a shootout in Bolivia because they just didn't like the way certain things happened. Sundance's companion in the movie was at a place, although in real life she went by Ethel, although her real name is unknown. Now, the Pinkerton Detective Agency called her Etta on its wanted posters and the name stuck, but she never used it. And the last name Place was a name that uh, she took while running with Sundance. Place was his mother's maiden name. So that was all an alias. Ethel was allegedly from Texas, placing her birth between 1878 and 1879. Then again, they had her name wrong. So I take that for what it's worth. We don't know where she really came from. We don't know her real name. Pinkerton describes her as 27 to 28 years old. You can go and read all kinds of speculation. There's no real evidence. We don't know what happened to her either. We know she lived in San Francisco until 1907. After that, she's never really seen again. In 1909, a woman matching her description asked the U.S. Vice Consul in Chile for assistance in obtaining a death certificate for a man named Longabaugh, which was uh, Sundance's real name. But the vice consul wasn't able to give her any help since such a certificate didn't exist. And she went away without giving her name. Again, there were lots of claims and theories, but the truth is that we, we just uh, don't know what happened to her. Another note about the name Sundance and the movie Robert Redford played him in that movie, and he so enjoyed the character that he took the name Sundance for various ventures, including a ski resort and a film festival he helped found that you may have heard of. Yes, that Sundance Film Festival is based upon a famous outlaw. So what happened to Anne and Josie Bassett? Remember those famous outlaw women? By April 1897, the two women had gone home, left Robber's Roost so that Cassidy and his gang could concentrate on their next robbery. Butch Cassidy would continue his romantic involvement with Anne just off and on for another four years, seeing her whenever he was near the ranch. Their total length of their relationship was around seven years, but was often interrupted. He was gone away for long periods of time, his 18 months in prison, the time she was involved with Ben Kilpatrick. By 1904, most of the outlaws that the Bassett girls had associated with were either dead or in prison somewhere. And Bassett never saw Butch again after he left for South America. She married a cattleman in uh, 1929 named Frank Willis. And they lived in Utah. They had a big ranch. She lived there for the rest of her life. And Willis was completely devoted to her. 
They worked together managing their business. And before she died, um, she supposedly asked to be cremated and that her remains were spread across her hometown in northern Utah. However, her husband just couldn't complete that task. He wasn't able to let go of the ashes and he kept them with him, allegedly driving them around with him in his car for the remainder of his life. Yeah, in his car. But when he died um, in 1963, friends and family took care of her ashes. Now, her sister Josie led quite the colorful life. Josie married five times and was only accused of killing a husband once because he died in mysterious circumstances after they had a large fight. She remained engaged in cattle wrestling her entire life, but whenever she got arrested for it, she played up the little old lady angle and was always allowed to get away with it. She lived an honorary life up in her own cabin until she slipped on some ice and broke a hip and passed away at the age of 90. But Josie was not the last member of the Wild Bunch. In 1961, the last known member of the Wild Bunch died. That's right, 1961. Unremarked in a little apartment in Memphis, Tennessee, Laura Bullion had outlasted them all. And that's my story. So if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and subscribe, follow, rate, review. Anything you do helps raise the visibility of Scalawags. If you have suggestions for stories you would like to see me cover, you can reach me at marguerite.writes at gmail.com. My Pinterest board has boards for each episode. That's at Marguerite Says. And the board for this episode is labeled Wild Bunch. I do have a Facebook page, The Scalawags Podcast. To be honest, I made an Instagram and some other stuff, but I just don't have the energy to spend that much time on the socials. So we will see. One last fun fact. My Fort Worth friends are probably wondering something. We live and work around a place that is bisected by Main Street, the location of the famous Fort Worth Five photo. Once this area was known as Hell's Half Acre and it was the red light district. Now this place is called Sundance Square. And yes, it was named for the Sundance Skid. So until next week, get out there and make some history of your own.